You may be seated. It's one of my favorite lines in all of hymnody, really, I think. Um, the line that says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's really the core of the gospel, isn't it? That, that really is the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel that, that the sinless Savior died. And so our sinful souls were set free from bondage to sin. Because God the just, the righteous God of the universe, the God who can do no wrong, the God who must do what is right, was willing to look upon him and pardon me. What wonderful truth that is. What wonderful love it is that Christ Jesus showed to us. And what wonderful love it is he shows to us in John 17, where We've been looking through on these Wednesday nights during Lent at the high priestly prayer. I've titled my meditation tonight, A Prayer for the True Church. And, and I did that for a couple of reasons. One is because that's what Jesus is doing here. He is praying for the church, for the church that really is the, the true church. And as he does it, he's following a pattern. He followed the pattern that the, the high priest would follow each year on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, he would make sacrifice for the people of Israel. He would enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And that was the only time each year that anybody would enter into the Holy of Holies, the place where God literally dwelt. You know, if you wanted to, to send God mail, you, know, you would send it to one temple lane apartment holy of holies you know that that would be his address he resided there and once a year the high priest would come into his presence and make these sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people of course those sacrifices didn't actually atone in and of themselves, but they atoned for the sins of the people because they pointed forward to the great sacrifice that the great Lamb of God would make, Christ Jesus, the great high priest, who was not only the high priest making the sacrifice, but the sacrifice itself being made. And what the high priest would do when he'd enter into the, the Holy of Holies, he would, he would say a a prayer, and it would follow a pattern. First he would pray for himself, which is a good pattern. He, he would confess his sin and he would he would realize his unworthiness to come before God and he would seek God's blessing upon himself and then he would pray for his family and for those closest to him and then ultimately he would pray for all the people of God the people of Israel and Jesus we see in here in John 17 has followed this same pattern essentially praying for himself and praying for those closest to him and now today, he turns his attention to the people of God in general. So with that in mind, let's read together as Jesus prays 
for all those who are truly members of the church and gives us a picture of what the true church is to be like. John 17, 20 through 26 is printed on your uh, worship page. Let us read it together, remembering that this is the inspired word of God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we ask that today as we come to the conclusion of the high priestly prayer, this great passage of scripture, you might speak to us once more. May your spirit be moving in our hearts in such a way that, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would direct us, that you would transform us. And that as a result of all of this work that you are doing in us, we might be the church that you would have us be. We know that the only way this can happen is through your mighty hand. So we turn to you now and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's humbling, I find, to have people pray for you. Oftentimes we'll get together and, and, and we'll be praying and somebody will pray for the pastor of our church, pray for Pete and his family or some other such thing. And, and it's truly a humbling thing that people uh, would, would think to pray for me, that they would consider it worthwhile to lift me up in prayer to our Heavenly Father. It's a humbling thing. I'm thankful for those prayers, and I'm humbled by them. It's, it's especially humbling when, when the prayers are, are prayed by people that you really respect, and that's why I so love it when people here in this church are praying for me. It's such a, an encouragement, and again, such a humbling thing. And it's the most humbling thing to think about this. Whether it's me or you, any of us in here, Jesus prays 
for us. Jesus prays for us. What a wonderful thing. You know, Jesus doesn't waste prayers. <laughs> he, he doesn't just kind of throw up superfluous, non-thinking prayers. Oh, I've got to put in some prayer time, so I'll just click off a couple things that, no. When Jesus is praying, he is pouring out his heart to the Father. His very heart, those things that concern him most. And he prays for us. What a wonderful thing. I say this because it's right here in the text. And, and we see a number of things about the true church here in the text. And the first of which, in this text, in which Jesus prays for us, we see that the true church is timeless, first of all. I do not ask for these only, he says in verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He doesn't say, I pray for those who might believe in me someday. I pray for the hypothetical folks who someday could come along and because of these things I'm saying now, through somebody else, might maybe, possibly, if all things go right, believe in my word. No. He says, I pray for those who will believe in my word. He's praying for particular people there. He's praying for you and for me. Not for just everybody, but for those who will believe in his word. Specific people. People whose names at that point were already written in the Lamb's Book of Life. People who were already given to him by the Father. And he prayed for us. He prayed not only for those disciples gathered in that room with him, but for all who would later believe. You see, we, we just like those men in that upper room, are his disciples. Disciples is a word that we sometimes don't use as broadly as we should. Uh, we think of it kind of, kind of like saints. Saints is a word that sometimes people talk about a saint as somebody who's, who's like really, really holy. You know, but, but really, all who are in Christ are made holy by Christ. And so, so biblically speaking, we are all saints. Likewise, the disciples aren't just a group of 12 people who follow Jesus around, but rather we are all disciples. A disciple is a learner. A follower. And that's what each and every one of us is, I hope. A learner and a follower of Jesus. We walk after him, learning from him, wanting to follow in his footsteps, becoming more like him. And for all who are such, he prays in this text. Also for those who will believe in me. What a wonderful thing. But he doesn't just pray for us 2,000 years ago. You know, he prayed for us then, and well, he's done with that. No. We see that even now, even, even right now, Jesus is praying for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, I, I remember when I first kind of 
came to this realization. You know, sometimes there's things you know, but then it just kind of clicks, and you know it on a deeper level, and it becomes more real to you. It wasn't that many years ago that I came to this realization that Jesus is alive right now in a body making intercession for us. You know, he's not just some ethereal spirit that can't be seen anywhere. Any, any, he is literally a physical person. He, he took on flesh, laid down his life, died. He rose again from the dead, and he didn't die again after that. He ascended to heaven, and he's still in a body. And what's he doing? What's he been doing for the last 2,000 years? He's been making intercession for us, praying for us, strengthening us. It's a timeless church that we're members of. We're part of the same church that existed 2,000 years ago. And the church that, should the Lord tarry, will exist 2,000 years from now. It's a timeless church. Eugene Peterson once said, this is one of my favorite quotes, I think I've shared it before, talked about how when he first started reading Charles Williams' writings on church history, I was, quote, a sectarian related only to a small coterie of people who lived and thought and prayed like me. But when I had finished, I was part of a congregation centuries deep and continents wide. You see, the congregation we're part of really is the, that kind of congregation. It's centuries deep. You know, our congregation is not just the 40 or so of us sitting right here. It's not just the, the 150 of us that will be here on Sunday morning. It, it's not just the, the however many there are in Michigan or the United States or even the world today. The congregation of which we are a part is continents wide and centuries deep. It is a timeless congregation. We share with that congregation. That's why we began our worship tonight with the Apostles' Creed. I wanted to underline this fact that, that this statement which has been, has been proclaimed by Christians throughout the centuries is something that we adhere to. It binds us together with them. This faith, this truth, this belief makes us part of one congregation. It is a timeless church that we belong to. Secondly, the, the true church is united. Verse 21, we see that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he says in verse 23, that I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. This is not some low ball of unity, low, low bar of unity here that he's he's setting. He's not saying, well, just as long as we've got some kind of commonality a little bit, that'll be good. No, he says that they might have the kind of unity that you and I had from the beginning of eternity. That's perfect unity that he's talking about. Perfectly one. Now we need to understand that unity is not necessarily the same thing as uniformity. It does not mean that 
everybody needs to look the exact same way and believe absolutely everything in the exact same way and all sing the same songs in the exact same way and all do everything in the exact same way. That's not what it means. It's not uniformity, but rather unity. In fact, I think it's a beautiful thing that in the day when Christ returns and and gathers people together, he will gather us together from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds and and different uh, denominational backgrounds and different uh, nationalities. It says in in Revelation 5.9, it speaks of them singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. That is the kind of body that the Lord is bringing together. And I, for one, think it will be a beautiful thing. You know what? In our heavenly worship, in the new heavens and the new earth, where our worship will be perfect before God, there will be things other than traditional Presbyterian worship, people sitting on red pews with uh, you know, an organ or a piano, and all of them white, and all of them having the same generic background. Now there will be a beautiful rainbow of colors and there will be a beautiful uh, gathering together of people bringing their gifts of worship from different places and different backgrounds and bringing them all together and it will be a wonderful thing. And we will be blessed by that worship. God will be pleased by that worship. And it will be a joy, joyful thing. We will be one body, united together. That's what it means to be united, really, is that, that we're one body. We share joys and sorrows. We, we aren't exactly the same, but we share in those things. And when you're happy, I'm happy. And when you're sad, I'm sad. And we live our lives in such a way that, that lives that out. It's not just an emotion one day, oh, I'm really bummed about this, but then I go on living my life, but rather I do something about it and, and I look for opportunities to serve those who need service. I look for opportunities to comfort those who need comforting. I look for opportunities to grieve with those who are grieving because that's what the body of Christ does. That's what it means to have unity together this perfect unity that has existed for all time between the father and the son this perfect unity that he desires the church to have the true church is a church that is timeless it is a church that is united it's also a church that is evangelistic i say that because it's right here in the text it says i and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one he says in verse 23 Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now that's not the only purpose for the church to exist. There are some churches that that everything is about evangelism and nothing else matters and nothing else has any purpose at all. And, And I'm not saying that's how we should be. But if we forsake evangelism altogether, then we are 
not the church that God wants us to be. Right here, he has a desire. He says, exhibit this kind of unity so that the world may know. He wants us to be a picture of unity, of love, of of care for one another so that people will be drawn to him through that. That it will be an attractive thing. People will, will be drawn to him, that they will see a picture of us reflecting God's image. We'll be like like the moon that reflects the light of the sun, right? The moon does not give off any light of its own. It merely reflects the light of the sun. We would be the same. We would be the moon to God's sun. And so it is that the fourth thing we have here is, is the church is to be glorious. And so it is God's glory that we would reflect. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 1, famously says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A little later in chapter 1, in verse 14, it says what happened after that was the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the Father revealed His glory in the person of the Son. It is in the person of the Son that we observe, that we We behold the glory of God. And what Jesus says here is that just as the Father has revealed his glory in me, so too my glory is revealed in the church. You know, in the Old Testament, God lived in the temple, like I said before. Before that, he he lived in the tabernacle. It was a a tent that moved around with the people as they traveled in the the wilderness. and, And God lived in the tabernacle, in the midst of the people. In the New Testament, later on, he, of course, walked in the person of Jesus Christ in their midst. What a wonderful thing. That's why he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word actually means he tabernacled among us. You could say literally and translate that, the word became flesh and pitched his tent in the middle of us. That's what God did. Now you know what he does. He dwells in us through the person of his spirit so that we are living temples. We are the temples of God. He dwells in us. What a wonderful thing. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? why we can be called the body of Christ because Christ's spirit dwells in us and so it is that we belong to Christ that's the fifth point of what the true church is the true church is Christ's possession we belong to Jesus father I desire that they also whom you have given me he says in verse 24 
may be with me where I am to see my glory. We've been given to the Son by the Father just as a, a bride. We see in Revelation 21, the image says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, that is the church, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We are this gift to the Son from the Father. Or in another image, going back to 1 Corinthians 6, where we were just a second ago, Paul goes on to say, after, after having said that the, you have the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, he says, you are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. See, that's what happened on the cross. Jesus purchased us. He redeemed us. It's really, it's, it's really a, a financial term. It's a, it's a term of, of uh, a purchase that took place in the marketplace. Specifically, a, a person sold into slavery could only be freed if somebody would redeem them, if they would purchase them out of slavery. And that is what Christ did for us. He, he through his blood, through the sacrifice made, through the payment of our penalty. He has purchased us out of our slavery to sin so that we might be set free to live to his glory. And so, having been purchased by him, we truly are his possession to live for his glory according to his word. Finally, sixth thing that the true church is that we see here, the, the, the church is personal. You see, uh, what I mean by that is, is being part of the church isn't just about knowing about God. It's not just like going to a class and, and you learn all these things about God and you get a diploma at the end and now it says you are a member of the church because you learned all these things. No, it's not a matter of learning about God. You see, it's not enough to know about God. We actually need to know God. We know him. We have a relationship with him through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we know God because he's been revealed through the person of Christ Jesus. He says, righteous father, even though the world does not know you, he says the, the, the world at large, the people who are not the church, do not know you. These know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. Just like if you were introduced to a person. If I have a friend that came here with me, my friend Eric was here with me and you walked up, I'd say, hey Mick, this is my friend Eric. I'd introduce you by name so that you might know him. See, you're not just knowing about it, you're, you're getting to know him. I want to introduce you. And Jesus says, I have introduced you to them. I have made, your known, made known your name to them. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's the idea. We need to enter into relationship with God. That's the kind of intimacy that the church has. The kind of intimacy that Jesus wants us to have. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them.
You see, we're united with Christ. We are bound to him. It's a wonderful thing. So intimate is our relationship that all that he has is ours. And all that we have is his. So we must live our life in such a way because we are bound to him inseparably. He knows us and we know him. And through him we know the Father. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for making us your people. We are not the true church because we've figured things out. We are not the true church because we are more uh, faithful than other people. We are not the true church because... Uh, we are more holy in our activities and in our thoughts and in our worship. We are not the true church because we memorized more Bible verses or read more chapters in your word. We are the true church because of what you have done for us, what you have accomplished in us because you have timelessly called us to be your own because you have united us with your son because you have reached out to us when we were lost and now call us to do the same to others you have shined your glory down upon us that we might reflect it you have made us Christ's and you have introduced yourself to us that is why we are the true church Help us to live out that identity to your glory now and forevermore. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Please rise with me now and sing our closing hymn, hymn number 399.